<clears throat> well, as some of you know, um, some years ago, I was part of a, a Christian organization that works on college campuses to evangelize and to disciple college students. This organization, as well as others, is called a para-church organization. Para from the Greek preposition para, which means alongside. That is, they don't claim to be a church, but they claim to come alongside the church to help the church fulfill its responsibility. Well, I enjoyed two years of working with this Christian organization on a, a university campus, but at the end of those two years, I was confronted with the question of whether I wanted to cast in my lot with that organization and perhaps pursue coming on staff with this organization or not. And it was at that time that I decided to undertake a study of the Greek word for church, ekklesia. And I studied all 111 or 113 usages of that word one by one. And I came to this conclusion. I saw that of those 111 or 113 uses of ecclesia, at least 90 of them pertain to the local church. And I realized, even though I had been through seminary by this time, I realized more clearly than ever before that the one institution that Jesus Christ came to establish on the earth was the, the local church. And so I made, by conviction, a very friendly departure from the organization and at age 26, I committed to serve the rest of my life in the context of the local church. Now, this morning, we have had the joy of welcoming five new members into our church, three of whom will soon be baptized. And I thought it would be fitting to bring a message that speaks to this whole matter of baptizing and receiving people into the church. So this morning, I want to ask and answer four questions relative to as I put for the title, whom should we baptize and receive into the church? And the first question is this, what is the local church? And I've come up with a, a rather cumbersome definition, and I'm not going to unpack the whole thing, but in order to get it right, I, I, it's rather long. But what is the local church? Here it is. A local church is a visible, definable assembly of true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, normally with overseers and deacons, that meets formally and informally for these purposes, to worship God, to be instructed in the Word of God, to fellowship in the Spirit of God, to serve in the name of God, and to evangelize with the gospel of God, to which every believer should be committed. Now, I'm not asking you to memorize that, and I'm not even going to begin to unpack the whole thing. It would take several sermons. But I want to focus on a couple of words in that definition, that a local church is a visible, definable assembly. And by that, I mean that the local church has boundaries. We can know who is in and who is out, that there's a line to be crossed from outside the local church to becoming a part of the local church. It's a definable, visible community. Well, what scriptures point us in that direction? Well, first, I would point you to Jesus' words in Matthew 18, 17, that the church was a recognizable body of, of people. Remember, in that context where Jesus tells us how to deal with sin in the church, if your brother sins, and it's clearly a sin, 
You go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, case closed, it's over. If he doesn't hear you, you take one or two, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be confirmed. You're calling up brother to repent of sin. If he doesn't listen to the two or three witnesses, you tell it to the church. Right, Jesus said. Now, when Jesus said that, the church wasn't yet formed, but he's assuming that the disciples would know who the church is, right? That they're not going to go around scratching their heads saying, well, he, tell, he told us to tell it to the church, but what's the church? He assumed that they would know and recognize who that body of believers was, who that local church was. And then he says that if he doesn't listen to the church, if that man or woman doesn't repent, they're to be treated as a tax collector and a sinner. That is, they are to be put out of the church and treated as an unbeliever. There again, it's very clear to Jesus' disciples who they are who are to be regarded as believers, and then who, sadly, are now to be regarded as outside and as unbelievers. There was also counting going on in the early church. On the day of Pentecost, when the apostle Peter got up and preached, he preached about Jesus Christ, and we're told in Acts 2.41 that there were added about 3,000 souls that day, about 3,000. Verse 47 says, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. And then a couple chapters later, Acts 4.4, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. In other words, they knew who was in the church. Somebody was counting it wasn't just this nebulous blob of people. They knew who was in the church. They were counting. If you look at Acts 5, and I'm not turning you there because I'm not really parking here, but in Acts chapter 5, we have the first case of excommunication, and it was execution. Ananias and Sapphira lied to the church, and as a result, God struck them dead. And the people around, the unbelievers said, these people are serious about God. You better not mess with them unless you're serious about God. And it says none of the rest, Acts 5.13, none of the rest dared to associate with them, but the people held them in high esteem. You get the picture? There's us, there's them. There's the rest and there's them. They knew who they were and who, they, who was outside. None of the rest dared associate with them. They knew who the them were. So what I'm saying is the church is a defined body. They knew who was in and who was out. Another passage in Acts 20, 28, we see that the church is a defined flock when Paul is meeting with the Ephesian elders, and he says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Now, when he spoke to these elders, He's assuming that they knew who the flock was among which the Holy Spirit made them overseers. They wouldn't go away scratching their heads and say, Paul told us to shepherd the flock, but we're not sure who the flock is. He assumes that they know who that flock was for which they were responsible. 1 Corinthians 5.12 is kind of a, a clincher for me. It's the context of church discipline where a man is having to be put out of the church because of immorality. And um, Paul says to the church there in Corinth, don't associate with him. That is, love him, but don't, have, don't, don't treat him business as usual because he has sinned and he needs to repent. And then Paul says, for what have I to do 
And he says, I'm not telling you to do this with immoral people who are in the world. Then we'd have to go out of the world. Then he says, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within? God judges those outside. There are two categories of people. There are those who are within and those who are outside. And if you take that word outside and see where it's used elsewhere, like in Colossians, the outsider is the unbeliever. God judges those outside. God takes care of the unbelievers. You are to judge those within. Within what? Within the local church. There are only two categories. You're either an outsider, which is an unbeliever, or you're inside. And what are you inside? You're inside the local church, as this man was, who is now being put out. And then we have all these one another passages in the New Testament. Love one another, serve one another, accept one another, build one another up. Don't neglect assembling with one another. And when the writers speak this way, they assume that you know who one another is. That it's not just every believer in the world, but that there's a defined body of believers with whom you have more than a casual, loose relationship, but a close, intimate relationship with frequent interactions. And so we can conclude that the local church is pictured in the New Testament, not as this nebulous blob of people, you don't know who's in, who's out, people coming and going, but rather it is a recognizable, definable, distinguishable, and therefore a visible entity. That's question number one. Question number two, how does one become part of a local church? Someone has said, that if baptism is not the door of entry into the local church, we have no clue as to what is. If baptism is not the door by which you become part of the local church, then the New Testament gives us no clue as otherwise as to how you become part of the local church. But I believe baptism is the door by which we come into the local church. In the Great Commission, in Matthew 28, 19, which we know so well, Jesus said, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them. And then what is to be done with baptized disciples? You know what follows. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded. And where is that to take place? Where are these baptized disciples to be taught? Well, it's pretty clear in 1 Corinthians 12, 28, Paul speaks of some gifts, and he says, as God has appointed in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. Where are the teachers that are to teach the newly minted disciples, baptized disciples? They're in the church. And in Ephesians 4, the ascended Christ gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastor teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. He's given those gifts to the church. And so the teaching is to take place in the church. So baptism becomes the door by which someone enters the visible church and becomes and comes to be taught all the things of Jesus for the rest of their lives. And the apostles followed the directives of Jesus. And so in Acts 2, on the birthday of the church, we read that 3,000 were convicted of their sin. Verse 41 says, Then those who had received his word, the word of the gospel through Peter, were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. And listen to what follows. They believed in Jesus. They got baptized. The very next verse says, 
And they continued, they were devoting themselves steadfastly to the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. In other words, they became part of the visible church. Baptism was the door of entry into the visible church. You become a disciple, you get baptized, and you come into the church. A third question, who should be baptized and received into the church? And here we refer to those same texts. Jesus said in the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them. Who is to be baptized and received into the church? According to Jesus, disciples. What is a disciple? In Acts 14.21, we read on Paul's first missionary journey after they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples. How do you make a disciple? By preaching the gospel. And those who believe the gospel and receive Jesus become disciples. And it is disciples who are to be baptized. And then in Acts 2, on that birthday of the church, on that day of Pentecost, the ones baptized and received into the church are said to be those who had received his word. Peter had preached about Jesus. He had told them how Jesus had been crucified but had been raised by God. And the people were struck to the heart with, with their sin, and they repented, and they believed. And then they were baptized and received into the church. And friends, we can see the importance of baptizing and receiving into the church only those who are believers. We believe in a regenerate membership. Why is that important? Well, the very word church, ecclesia, means called out ones. Ek out of call, oh, call. They are people called out of the general society. The church needs to be made up of called out ones, called out of the world into the family of God. The church is called the body of Christ in the New Testament. Jesus Christ is the head. So the, the body must correspond to the head. And so those who are part of the body of Christ must share in the life of Christ. Further, the church is called a temple of God. Paul says to the Corinthians, um, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy. And that temple, you, plural, are. You, the church, are the temple of God, the place where God dwells. And therefore, the church needs to be made up of those who individually are temples of God, and 1 Corinthians 6, 19 says, you, as an individual Christian, are, your body is the temple of God. And so the corporate temple is made up of those who are individual temples of God, places where God, by his Holy Spirit, dwells. Do you see the importance, then, of the church being made up of only believers? Further, the church in 1 Timothy 5, 3, 15 is called the pillar and support of the truth. So those who are in the truth must be people who are of the truth, believers. And one final note, Peter refers to believers as living stones who are built into a spiritual house. You're a living stone if you're a believer. The Spirit of God dwells in you. You're alive with the life of God. You're a living stone made part of this temple, this dwelling place of God. And so do you see why we believe that the church ought to be made up of only believers? as much as possible. But here's the final question, and here's the one I'm going to spend a little more time on. 
How do we know that someone is a disciple? You follow the logic so far, right? The church is a visible community. How do you get into it? Of, by baptism. Who gets baptized? Believers. But how do we know who is a believer? How do we know who to put through the waters of baptism and who to receive into the church? How do we know that someone is a disciple? Well, I have to say we can't know infallibly. Only God knows the hearts of people, right? We don't claim that we infallibly know. But the Bible makes it very clear how we might know who is a disciple and who is a proper candidate to be baptized and to be welcomed into the church. There are actually many ways, many marks of a believer from the New Testament. But one is that the believer is said to be one who has been born again, regenerated. Turn for a moment to the Gospel of John, and then we're going to turn to the Epistle of John, which was read by our brother Andre. But just for a moment, John, the Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, chapter 1. And I want to look at just a couple verses. Who is a disciple? One of the characteristics of a disciple is that he or she has been born again, regenerated, and we see it right here. In verse 11, John says, he, Jesus, came to his own, that means his own people, the people of Israel, and those who were his own did not receive him. Largely, he was rejected by the Jewish community. But notice verse 12, but as many as received him, Jesus, to them he gave the right, the authority to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Now notice, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. He's talking about believers in Jesus, those who received Jesus. Some rejected him, many rejected him, but some received him and believed in him. Why did they believe him? Because they were born not of bloods, literally. That means they didn't inherit it. Nobody is a believer because their father or mother is a believer. It's not of bloods. You can't inherit saving faith, nor of the will of the flesh. It wasn't because of the power of their own free will that they believed, nor of the will of man. Nobody else made them a Christian. Oh, we have people that we love that we wish would become Christians. We have no power to make them Christians. The ones who believe and receive are not born of bloods. They're not born of the will of the flesh. They're not born of the will of man. We can't make anyone else a Christian. But notice, they are born of God. Why did they believe? Why did they receive? Because God did something first. They were born of God. They were reborn. They were regenerated by the power of God. And so, how do you recognize a disciple? One who has been born again. But you say, well, how can we tell that somebody's been born again? Ah, that's where the epistle of John helps us. And turn for the remainder of our time to John's first letter. John wrote a gospel, but near the end of the New Testament, he wrote three letters. And our brother Andre read chapter 1 of 1 John. So you have 1 Peter, 2 Peter, then you have 1 John. It's the first epistle of John. And as our brother said, one of John's purposes was to correct the error of the Gnostics, these false knowers of God who were not living morally, and to give assurance to the true people of God. 
And so, John, this letter is known for the tests that it gives of true discipleship. How do you know that someone really knows God and really has been born of God? Well, John gives us tests, and we're going to look quickly at six of them. How do we know that someone is a disciple? How do we know that we should baptize someone and receive them into the church? Well, they've been born of God. How do we know they've been born of God? John's going to help us. First of all, if you've been born of God, you have a new relationship to Jesus. Look at 1 John chapter 5 and verse 1. It says, 1 John 5, 1, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. That's the new birth. What's the first mark of a born-again believer? He believes that Jesus is the Christ. Now you say that's no big thing, but actually it's a very big thing. The word Christ is the Greek word Christos from the Hebrew Mashiach, and it means anointed one. And in the Old Testament, there were three offices that were anointed. Priests were anointed, prophets were anointed, and kings were anointed. And so when you say, as one born again, Jesus is my Christ, what are you saying? Jesus is my priest, my prophet, and my king. That's no small thing. What is it to say Jesus is my priest? Well, in the Old Testament, there were human priests who offered animal sacrifices of bulls and goats and lambs for the sins of the people. But Jesus is the final priest who offered not a bull, not a goat, not a lamb, but he offered up himself. He's the self-sacrificing priest. He is both the priest and the sacrifice. He offered up himself as the final sacrifice to end all animal sacrifices, to pay for the sins, all of the sins of everyone who will believe in him. And so when you say Jesus is my Christ, you're saying Jesus is my priest. He's the only priest I need. His death on the cross pays for all my sins. And that's all I need to get into heaven. He's my priest. When you say Jesus is my Christ, you say Jesus is my prophet. The prophets were those who declared the word of God. They were the mouthpieces of God. Jesus is the final prophet. He is the way, the truth, the life, and he spoke the truth about God. And when you are born again, Jesus becomes your prophet, which means the whole word of God becomes the word of God to you because Jesus, by his spirit, inspired the whole word of God. And now you follow everything the word of God says because Jesus is your prophet. When you say Jesus is my Christ, you're also saying Jesus is my anointed king. Formerly, I had things that ruled over me. We're born into the devil's kingdom. We're his slaves. We're born slaves of sin and our own lusts and passions. But when we are born again, we have a new king. The, the kingship of sin and Satan is dethroned, and Jesus becomes our king, the one who rules over us by his indwelling spirit, giving us right motivations and giving us the power to do right. And so, are you born again? Then you believe that Jesus is the Christ. He's your priest. He's your prophet. He's your king. But there's another test. There's a new relationship to sin. Look at 1 John 3, 9, and then 5, 18. 1 John 3, 9 says, No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. 
In chapter 5 and verse 18, we know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. Now, before you panic and you say, wait a minute, I can't be born again because I still sin, please understand that John is not saying here that when you are born again, you stop sinning. It's the present tense in the Greek, and what he means is when you are born again, you no longer sin habitually. You no longer sin characteristically. We're going to sin. We're all going to sin until we're either perfected in spirit upon our death or glorified upon the return of Jesus. But here's the point, that the infusion of new life in Jesus Christ by the indwelling spirit gives the born-again person a deliverance from the dominion or control of sin. Romans 6, 6, 6 says, The old man has been crucified with him, that the body of sin should be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. See, that's the key. When you're born of God, you're no longer a slave to sin. Sin is no longer your master. You're no longer characterized by the deeds of the flesh. Now, the flesh is still in us, but we are no longer in the flesh. And there's a, a heaven and hell difference there. You're not in the flesh, but you're in the spirit, though the flesh still dwells in you. But you're no longer dominated by sin, characterized by sin as you once were. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 is a passage we could look to. Paul says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he gives a list of sins that characterize the unrighteous, the unborn again. He says, Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit of our God. That's what John means when he says, if you're born of God, you no longer practice sin. A rather simple illustration I like to use, but I think it's very effective it's the comparison between a pig and a cat. Before we were Christians, we were like pigs in the sense that let's picture the mud puddle as sin. When a pig sees the mud puddle, what does he do? He runs to it, he wallows in it, and he says, ah, I'm home. I'm comfortable here, and he wants to stay there. The cat, on the other hand, may fall into the mud puddle, but the cat's not going to wallow around in it. The cat's going to jump out, lick itself off, and try not to do it again, right? Well, that's the difference between an unbeliever and a believer. As unbelievers, we were like the pig. We wallowed in sin. Sin was our element. We enjoyed it for the most part. We were comfortable there. We were home there. But when we're born again, we become like the cat. Yes, we sin, but it's no longer home. It's no longer a comfortable place where we want to stay. We want to get out and not so much lick ourselves off, but let the blood of Christ cleanse us, forgive us, and give us new grace to move on from that sin. And so, if you've been born of God, you have a new relationship to sin. It is no longer master over you. You no longer characteristically live in it. But thirdly, if you're born of God, you have a new relationship to righteousness. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 29, back to 1 John 2.29, says, If you know that he is righteous, Jesus, you know that everyone 
who practices righteousness is born of him. There's the new birth again. You see it? What characterizes the born again person? He or she practices righteousness. You see, the Christian life, contrary to how many view it, is not just a bunch of negatives. It's not just don't do this, don't do that. That's not the Christian life. The Christian life is two directional. We are to put off sin, but we are to put on the corresponding graces that are contrary to that sin. It's a put off, put on dynamic. And no place makes it clearer than in Ephesians chapter 4. You can turn there for a moment, Ephesians 4. And the Apostle Paul in verses 22 to 24 talks about the change. In reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. When you're born again, the old self is gone and the new self characterizes you. But then he describes the result, the fruit of becoming a new self, becoming born again. Look at verse 25. Therefore, since you're no longer old self, but your new self, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. When you're born again, you want to be done with lying, done with falsehood, done with deceit, even in its subtle nuances. I want to be a man, a woman who speaks truth, the whole truth and only the truth. Further, be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Notice he doesn't say when you become born again, you stop being angry. He says, be angry. But the implication is now be angry with a holy, righteous, Christ-like anger and be done with sinful, self-centered anger. Be angry, but not sinfully angry. He says, he who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he might will have something to share with one who has need. Old self was selfish. It stole for its own benefit. The new self now works to give, put off, put on. It affects our tongues. It affects our words. Let no unwholesome, literally used in the Gospels for rotting fish, let no rotten word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, for building up according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. When you are born of God, it changes the way you speak. You don't speak words that tear down and wound and hurt, but you want to speak words that edify and bless and build up. And then, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Those things go out the window with the old life along with all malice and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. So when you're born again, you not only no longer practice sin, but you are on a new path of practicing righteousness. You're putting off the old ways and you're putting on these characteristics of, of righteousness. But then fourthly, there's a new relationship to the people of God. When you're born again, see, we can't know infallibly, but we can know pretty accurately who's been born of God because these are the marks. These are the signposts that someone has been born of God. And the fourth one is there's a new relationship to the people of God. First John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. 
And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. In chapter 5, verse 1, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. When you are born again, it marks a new relationship to fellow believers, to other Christians. Now you love them with a love you didn't have before, and for two reasons. Because you love God, you love what God loves, and God loves his people. You're not his only child. He loves all his people, and so if you love God, you love what he loves, and he loves his people. And also, there's a special love for the people of God because there's a special bond that is between us as the people of God. We love the people of God because they love what we love and they hate what we hate. Our fellow Christians love the same things. They love righteousness and goodness and truth and holiness. They love the Bible. They love true justice. They love to see people converted. They love to see people grow in grace. And they hate the same things that you hate. They hate the world of ungodliness. They hate the devil. They hate sin. They have the same desires to be holy and to avoid sin and to see people converted and grow in grace and to see God glorified. And these things bind us together. Friends, the fellowship of the people of God is the only supernatural fellowship in the world. That's why the Bible calls it fellowship of the spirit. It is something that as I come away from our two-week time in Europe that was impressed upon me in a fresh way. As there we are, American-born, and we're there with our German-born brother, Andre, our Indian-born convert out of Hinduism, Anu. We're there with our Muslim convert from Yemen, with his dear wife from the Netherlands, and we're visiting refugees, a woman saved out of Islam from, Yemen, from uh, Kuwait, another from Syria, and we're all together as, as part of the same family of God. And I was just reminded that the things that separate us geographically and linguistically and culturally are nothing compared to the things that unite us in Jesus Christ. Yes, we speak a different language. Yes, we come from different backgrounds with different practices and, and cultures. But think of the things that unite us. We're born of the same Heavenly Father. We're purchased by the same divine Son. We've been regenerated by the same Holy Spirit. We're opposed by the same devil. We're aliens in the same world. And we're headed for the same heaven. And the things that unite us far surpass the things that divide us. And we had a sweet reminder of that as we had fellowship in the Spirit at times, despite the language barrier, and we had going between Dutch and Arabic and German and English, and somehow we, we communicated. But there's a fellowship in the Spirit. Fifthly, out of six, there's a new relationship to the world without God when you're born again. First John 5 and verse 4, For whatever is born of God, and that's people, overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. The world here refers to people who do not know God and the things of the world without God. 
Why do we overcome the world by faith? Because Jesus did first. As he closes out his discourse in the upper room, John 6, he says this to his disciples. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. We walk in his train. We walk in the victory that Jesus has accomplished over the world. How does our faith overcome the world? Let me suggest two ways. Our faith overcomes the temptations and love of the world. 1 John 2, 15 and 16 says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. The world, the lust of the flesh and the eyes and the pride of life wants to lure us by these things and tear us away from Christ. That happened to one of Paul's closest associates, Demas, in one of his letters commended as one of his companions. Later on, he says, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. But as Jesus overcame the world, remember how he overcame in the wilderness? He was tempted by the lust of the flesh, turned these stones into bread, the lust of the eyes, I'll give you... Um, all these kingdoms, if you bow down to me, the pride of life. Um, throw yourself off the temple. God will send his angels to catch you. Jesus was tempted on every front. But in each case, he says, it is written, it is written, it is written. He resisted and he overcame the temptation and love of the world. And we overcome through him. We will not be perfect. We fall into sin we fall into the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. But the promise of God is that we, were never, we will never finally and fully fall away from him. We will be kept. So we overcome the temptations and love of the world. We also overcome the tribulations and persecutions of the world. In the book of Revelation, Jesus addresses seven churches. And he promises that to those who overcome and are faithful, in the face of false teachers, in the face of persecution, he promises these things. You'll eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. You'll not be hurt by the second death. You'll be given authority over the nations. You'll be clothed in white garments. You'll sit down with me on my throne. As Jesus overcame the persecutions of the world, he will give us an overcoming faith so that Peter says, we are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And Paul says, neither death nor life nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The born-again believer has the life of God within him, him or her, has the spirit of God within and will continually hold to the way and not turn their back on Christ and cling to him until the end. Come what may. And then finally, if you've been born again, you have a new relationship to the word of God. And here I turn you for a moment to another letter, Peter's letter, 1 Peter 2, 2, 3. Like newborn babes, there's the birth picture. Long for the pure spiritual milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. You know and one thing that characterizes a newborn baby is their insatiable hunger for milk, and they'll root around for, for its mother or for milk, right? 
They, they, they crave the milk of their mother. And Jesus says the newborn spiritual babe will crave the milk of God's word. One of the things that characterizes a newborn child of God is a new relationship to the Bible. You may have had the habit before of reading the Bible, and if you're a young person, maybe because your parents faithfully insisted that you do, you should do that, parents. You can't do what God can do, but you can direct your children into the Word. You're going to have a quiet time. You're going to spend a half hour or whatever in, in, the, in the Bible. And maybe you read the Word because your parents made you. But when you are born again, you have a new interest in the Bible, a new understanding of the Bible. It begins to make sense, a new desire to do what it says, and a new power to walk in its ways. If we come back to 1 John chapter 2, 3, and 4, it says, By this we know that we have come to know him which is another way of saying we've been born of him. By this we have come to know, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I've come to know him and doesn't keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. And so when you're born of God, it affects your relationship to the Bible. In fact, Jesus connects our love for him and our relationship to his commandments. He says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So the result of being saved by Jesus is that you show your love for Jesus by your attachment to the word of Jesus. As Paul says, you're one who is a child of light trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. And the only way you can know what is pleasing to the Lord is in his revealed word, the Bible. So friends, there we have it. Those who are about to be baptized and the others whom we have received into the church today, they will be baptized and they are being received into the church because we believe they have been born again. They have believed in Jesus Christ as the only Savior of sinners to the salvation of their souls. And what is the evidence uh, in their lives? Well, we see a new relationship to Jesus. He is their priest. He is their prophet. He is their king. We see them testifying to a new relationship to sin. Sin is now their enemy. They don't want to walk in it anymore. They're not defined by it. They still commit sin, but they're not dominated by it. We see in them a new relationship to righteousness. Now they want to be righteous. Now they want to be holy. They want to become more like Jesus. And we see a new relationship to the people of God. The people of God have become their closest family. We see a new relationship to the world that is without God. They are overcoming the world, overcoming the love of the world by their faith in Christ, and they will overcome the persecution from the world and cling to Christ. And we see a new relationship to the word of God. It has become food for their souls. And so these things we've seen in 1 John are also a way that you might measure yourself or I Myself, And let me make some quick applications to, I think, every category of person here. First of all, some of you are baptized church members. You've come to Christ by faith. You've become a disciple. You've been baptized and you've joined the church. This is a reminder to us of the things that should characterize us, the things that characterize the new birth. May all of us grow in regard to these characteristic marks of a born-again person. Maybe 
you're a baptized believer in Jesus, but you've not yet joined the church. I say to you again, once you're convinced that a particular church is a safe and healthy place, albeit not a perfect church, as the adage goes, if it's a perfect church, don't join it because you'll ruin it. Not a perfect church, but if you're convinced this is a healthy place, this is a safe place, I've heard enough of the preaching, I've seen enough of the life of the church, it's a good place, it's as good as any around, sign on the dotted line and join, commit. It's biblical. Maybe you're a believer in Jesus, but you've not yet been baptized. To you, I would say, that if you're of an age where your parents, well, if you're an adult and you're a believer in Jesus and you haven't been baptized, obey him. It's the first command. It's the only one you can fully obey. So many commands of Jesus were not fully obeying. But when he says be baptized, you could say, yep, did it, did it perfectly. Every hair was put under the water. For me, not so many. But every hair was put under I was totally immersed. I, I obeyed perfectly. So if you're an adult believer, you need to get baptized. If you're a younger person, you need to work with your parents and make sure that they're convinced that there's enough evidence of new life in you. As with our, our young brother, Ferris here, 12 years old, he will be the youngest person I've ever baptized. But as I've interrogated him, you know, and asked him a lot of questions, it's evident and trusting his parents' discernment that this young man has come to new life in Christ um, well, then you need to be baptized. And then finally, maybe you're an unbeliever. Maybe none of those things that John talks about characterizes you at all. It's because you've not been born again. And the life of God is not within you. To you, I say, you need to take the first step and put your trust in Jesus Christ alone to forgive you of your sins. He is the only Savior he makes this unique claim. I am the way and the truth and the life, and no man comes to the Father but through me. To some, that would be arrogant, and it would be if it weren't true. I'm the only way to God. I'm the only way to get you to heaven. But he is a sure way. Transfer your trust from whatever you're trusting in to get to heaven, your good works, your, your morality, your church attendance. Put the full weight of your soul on Jesus to take away your sins and give you new life, then you'll want to be baptized and join the church. But that's secondary. First, put your trust in Jesus. And make sure that you've been born of him. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing a hymn, and then we will prepare for the baptism. Father, pray that you would take these words and seal them to the hearts of each one of us as each one as need according to the various categories. Apply it to us. May your spirit go beyond this room to bear fruit from your word. We ask in Jesus' name.